I'd like to welcome on the show our third podcast guest. She is an abuse recovery coach and founder of Badass Broad Coaching Company, Miss Trish Lane. Trish, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Clara. How are you? I'm good. So let's just start with your background. Tell me about yourself. How old am I? I'm 46. I have a 29-year-old daughter. I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And I've been here for most of my life. I am, uh, I'm a, I've been a writer for almost all of my life, you know, for as long as I could hold a pen. I picked up a pen and started writing all my feelings down and poetry and all that good stuff. And then I became a blogger and a published writer. And uh, now I'm a narcissistic abuse recovery coach. I saw that. That's actually one of the first things I noticed from your Instagram profile. Um, it says you are a narcissist abuse recovery coach. Could you actually explain what a narcissist is? Because I honestly, I'm not that familiar with that term, but I notice on Instagram, a lot of people use that term. Well, narcissist, there's, there's two ways of using that term. There's the way that society is using it now, which is, you know, the, the era of selfies and people's idea of what self-love is and, and very in love with their, with their own self image. That is um, narcissist in our cultural term now, but someone, um, in the terminology that I use it for is in reference to someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. Right. And the, the disorder actually, um, stems from childhood where there's trauma, um, poor environment that supports the, the trauma and where there's actual brain damage, uh, to the child at a young developmental stage where they're emotionally stunted. So that part of their brain that processes emotions such as remorse and guilt, empathy and compassion and love and that ability to self-reflect has been permanently stunted and can't be regenerated. So they in turn come from, they process relationships, emotions, life and everything from that stunted part of their life, that light part of their life where the trauma occurred. And uh, you'll see most times these these people with narcissistic personality disorder look like toddlers throwing a temper tantrum when they're not getting what they want. But when I refer to narcissists in my recovery programs and with my clients in a discussion, it's always in reference to that someone with NPD. I see. So it's more than just a personality trait. It can go as far as a mental disability. Yeah, well, we all have narcissistic personality traits, particularly now that we have the ability to take selfies, a thousand selfies and post only one on our phones. Right. You know, and and so we all have narcissistic personality traits where it can appear somewhat selfish, but someone with MPD definitely has it's it's not necessarily a mental health issue as much as it is a personality disorder. I see. I see. So as a recovery coach, what exactly do you do with your clients? Can you run us through like a step-by-step what you do with them? Well, there's really no step-by-step. As a coach working with survivors of narcissistic um, abuse, I am working with people who are coming out of relationships, long-term or short-term relationships with narcissists who have endured the psychological abuse. So psychological abuse over time can also create um, a shrinking of the hippocampus in somebody who's being abused. And the hippocampus is the place of our brain where we hold store memory and it's our learning center of our brain. So when you, you've endured um, a long period of psychological abuse, it's like, it's like a muscle that begins to atrophy. And 
a lot of people coming out of narcissistic abuse are dealing with memory loss. They're dealing with um, adrenal fatigue. And adrenal fatigue shows up in so many ways in our body. It shows up as hair loss uh, due to stress, weight loss, weight gain, cortisol levels through the roof. And uh, it shows up as physical ailments that really have no, you know, the doctor can't prove why this is happening. Yeah. Can't even find anything wrong. But so there's the adrenal fatigue. There's also PTSD. And uh, so we learn to manage all of those different stages of the healing process bit by bit. Healing's not linear. It is a different process and it's all over the place for everyone. So really when I'm working with a client, we're managing one thing at a time. We want to, when you get out of that relationship, when you're in crisis mode, we want to manage the crisis so that you can learn a new normal. Because when you're with a narcissist, you're not living your life. You're just along for the ride in theirs. So it's always, you've been adapting to the foods that they like, the the places they like to go, the things that they like to do. And nine times out of 10, most of the time, you don't even know what it is that you like. Of course. Because you've adapted your life to theirs for so long. So it really is about managing the different stages. But we first want to get you out of crisis mode and get you functioning and creating a new routine. So obviously you have a big passion for helping victims of abuse. Were you once a victim as well? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't... I, I, and that word victim is something that um, that kind of really resonates at a lower vibrational energy for me. I really had to go from that victim to being a survivor to being an overcomer. I like that. Because, yeah, when we're in that energy of victim, it's very disempowering. I was in a relationship with someone for almost seven years, not even realizing that it was abuse because I was already at a very low level in my life of low self-esteem, low self-love, didn't even know what those things were when I met the narcissist. So it gave him an open door to walk through and take advantage of me. And and not being able to identify the signs of abuse very early in the relationship, I didn't even know what the red flags were. So how did you meet this partner and how old were you? I was, oh boy. So I was in my late 30s, I guess, when I met him. And I met him at a rock concert, which is something I love to do. And I learned, which is where he met almost all of the women he's been engaged with. Oh, no way. Yeah. And narcissists will repeat cycles. They'll find the same type of supply, narcissistic supply. In the same way. Yeah. You met him at the rock concert. And then after that, you went on a couple dates, I assume. How long was it before you guys started dating? Well, I was a tour manager at the time for, for an entertainer. And I was wrapping up my my tour. So it wasn't about until a month later when I actually met him for a drink. But you know, he at the concert, I looked at him, I thought, Oh, well, I need some excitement in my life. He looks like a bad idea. And I got back from tour, it was, um, it was really easy to, to meet up with him and start falling into this charm that he was, he was giving out like narcissists are extremely charming. Oh, yeah, captivating, very captivating. So he was, you know, emitting all this charm and and exuding all of this really good energy, which in turn was, they, they like to mirror things you like. Yeah. They like to mirror your personality. So you did get along with him at first and like you had good chemistry because the other women I talked to, they actually, they're like from the get go, I didn't like him and I don't know why I dated him. Well, and that's the funny thing is it's, he wasn't anyone that I would typically date. Ah, so not your type. Not, he was the bad boy rocker type, but he wasn't a good idea. I needed some excitement. Yeah, I thought this will be fun for a little while. But then what, what narcissists do 
is they start triangulating you with other people. Uh, so to so you'll amp up your game and you'll step things up and they create this level of competition between other people right right so that you're always vying for their affection and that gives them more narcissistic supply so very early in the stage with with me he had triangulated me with a few other women and he kept that up for a few months because myself worth was so low i couldn't even see what was going on so that was kind of one of the first red flags what was the another like any other signs that you saw early on uh he was very verbally abusive very dismissive but in such a way and i can't say it's early on because this abuse is very insidious they start at the idealization stage where they put you on this pedestal and they're trying to hold you in this light that makes you feel good and makes you feel loved and they're really tapping into all of those vulnerabilities you have, you feel connected to them. And it's not until you feel connected to them and you feel like you would do anything for this person that the abuse starts to happen. It's very insidious. It weaves its way in over time. So it wasn't until I was already enamored and had fallen what I thought was in love with this person that he starts to devalue me by taking all of the things that were once things he appreciated and adored about me and then they became things that he loathed and disliked. Absolutely. So you guys were together for how long? Almost seven years on and off. Seven years. Do you have like a landmark moment with him that was the first abuse situation that you can remember? Landmark moment? There were so many um, little things that, that I dismissed. But um, a huge component of um, our relationship was the sexual abuse that a lot of people don't talk about. And what the, the first landmark moment was for, for me was sex was a huge focus in our relationship. And he took our very intimate photos and had published them on a social media platform and had published them on an amateur porn site oh my unbeknownst God. to me. So it wasn't until a month later that he had all of this stuff up that I realized that he actually confessed to me that, hey, look, look, I'm doing this is fun. I realized that this isn't something that I signed up for and I called him out on it. And at that point, I had just... You know, I was starting a new job and I said, listen, I can't be in the public eye like this. You need to take those photos down. And he and he threatened me and told me that if I didn't get with the program, he was going to send those photos to my boss and to my parents and my child. So, of course, what do you do when you're being psychologically abused? You get with the program because the last thing I wanted was to be exposed. That's devastating. So I went along with so many um I was sexually exploited. Um, I did a whole lot of things that I never would have done in any healthy relationship had I had any value for myself. You know, there were a lot of a lot of sexually abusive tendencies in our relationship, and uh, that was probably the biggest component. That was the landmark. The sex with a narcissist is so intense that you mistake that intensity for love because that's how they use that connection. They use that connection, that that sexual intensity as a marker for love for you. So they don't actually feel love. They just feel excitement, they feel intensity, they feel uh, disappointment, but they don't have the capacity to love. It's not possible. You have to have empathy in order to truly love somebody. Exactly, yeah. They're obsessed with that control. Yes. So sexual abuse was a huge component. Was there any other types of abuse, financial, physical? Absolutely. Aside from the emotional and the psychological and the sexual, Financial abuse with a narcissist is 
incredibly. They go um, hand in hand and not many people realize how common they that don't, is. They really don't realize how common it is. But And it's not until, like at the point when I was with the narcissist, I was making the most money I'd ever made in a career in my life. Really? But I never, yeah, and I never had any. I never had any money. But I had no bills other than living expenses. So I couldn't understand why I never had any money. The narcissist will always manipulate your finances, whether they have control over your bank account or not. They will find a way to manipulate your finances. Oh, yes. So that you don't have any cash. He would go and book trips for us and tell everybody who would listen that he was taking me on all these trips. But it was my paycheck going on those credit cards. Fuck that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But financial recovery has been a huge aspect. I mean, emotionally, uh, I'm doing much better adrenally I'm starting to balance out my hair is growing back like all of these wonderful things are happening but the financial recovery is almost always the most difficult one for many people to attain and it's control it's all about control and they'll play the victim even though they've ruined you they'll completely play the victim he's still playing the victim um to anyone who will listen of course people that I have ruined his life but if you hadn't been such a shitty person I wouldn't have anything to write about. I wouldn't have anything to heal from, you know, and, and it's very triggering as I watch him go about his life. I had opened up Facebook the other day and in the feed was one of our mutual friends and unbeknownst to me, she's on a holiday with him in the States and I'm triggered automatically because he just gets to go about his life. Right. He gets, he gets to go about traveling. He gets to go about the business of living and enjoying things. And here I am recovering and and once again in recovery mode because of him or because of our situation and it's it's, unfair it really is yeah well it does seem unfair considering i would have had tons of money had i not been in that relationship well he's on vacation don't get me wrong yeah well he's on vacation exactly don't get me wrong i'm not putting blame on him and i'm the, the the abuse isn't my fault but the healing is my responsibility. When I look at how I showed up in that relationship, and this triggers some people, but when you get to a certain place in your healing, you're able to identify how you showed up in a relationship, how certain things were allowed to happen, how we permitted those things to occur. Because had I the self-respect and self-love and care that I have for myself now, that guy never would have made it into my energy field. Yeah, and that's very mature of you to think. I mean, it's never your fault. No. Recognizing those traits, healing yourself, fixing yourself, so it will yeah. never happen again. It's it's a huge step to take. Well, and it's an ongoing process too. It's, you know, and I'm very honest. And I think this is how I have um, the clients that I have and the following that I do is I get on there and I'm very vulnerable about the process for myself. Absolutely. I will never claim to be healed. Once I'm healed, my existence on earth is done. The one thing that we've always got to do, there's going to be something that down the road, even five years from now, you know, something might not make sense to me now. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but in the moment when somebody's telling you something or you're experiencing something, it doesn't make sense to you at the time. But then five or 10 years down the road, you'll go, oh yeah, now I get it. Oh yeah. And I think everyone can relate to that. Yeah. So you're with this guy for seven years. Yes. Eventually, of course, you cut that off. Do you remember what was the last straw for you? Well, the last straw for me was when I... When I ended up, we had a 15-month break in between a breakup. 15 months. And I figured, oh, yeah, I'll never go back. But I was angry, and I hadn't healed what was making me angry and what was hurting inside. And I I honestly believed he was my soulmate. 
that's how much I was hurting. And uh, when we did get back together, I believed everything he said. I believed that he was going to change. And I believed that, you know, he'd finally seen the light and the error of his ways. And then within three months, I went, oh, shit, nothing has changed. And things progressively got worse because I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't play. I wouldn't, and literally play. I wouldn't do the sexual things that he wanted to do. I wouldn't um, be sexually intimate with other couples. I wouldn't take photos. I wouldn't do any of those things anymore because he'd betrayed me ultimately. So now, you know, he's bored with me. And he just kept telling me that I didn't have to be anything in life but a whore and I'd be looked after. Mm -hmm. And all the bells are ringing in my head. Every red flag is waving. And I'm thinking, how do I get out of this? I'm so financially screwed. And emotionally, like I was, there was just no way for me to get out. So I thought. So I went from being a woman in the entertainment field as a promoter and, and a professional to working at a little dive bar slinging beer as a waitress. And that is probably the thing that saved my life because I was able to hide money. And it was, you know what? I was able to hide money in my yoga bolster. So every morning when I did yoga, I'm sitting on a pile of cash and I'm meditating on that pile of cash. <laughs> yeah. It was, I was like, wow, this is, this is the only way it's gonna, it's gonna happen. And, uh, he realized that I was sexually bored with him and I no longer wanted to interact with him that way. And he called me on it and I said, yeah, I am just done. I'm just done. And so we had a plan that I was going to leave within three months, but I knew I had to leave now because I was waking up in the middle of the night to him masturbating beside me and trying to take my clothes off and molesting me. And I'm like, I can't, I can't have this. I can't live like this. I had gone five weeks with no sleep, insomnia. So this is where the adrenal fatigue got worse. I was not mentally capable of holding conversations, of even functioning at work. And uh, I finally just knew that I had to go. And when I made the decision that I had to go now, that I couldn't wait for the three months, because he said I could stay for three months as a privilege to save money, not have to pay rent or bills, so that he could help me out that way. But really, all he wanted to do was stay in control. So while he was in control of this whole situation, I wasn't sleeping. I was sick. I was losing my hair. You know, I'm waking up to him beside me in very uncomfortable ways. And I'm like, no, I got to go. As soon as I made the decision, the universe conspired with me and brought all of these people into my awareness. I had people show up and go, yeah, let's just get you moved. Within two and a half hours, my whole life was moved from one house to another. That's amazing. So you took that first step. One of your posts on social media that really moved me was a post that said, it can be terrifying to think of leaving and even more so to take that first step. However, there's a deeper knowing within which pulls you in the direction of relief, peace, and happiness. And I really like this post because you mentioned that the first step is often the hardest. What advice would you give to another person in abuse into taking that first step like you did? You've got to trust. You've got to have faith and you've got to have trust. And one of my biggest, my most focused mantras that I, that I hold close to me is with the faith of a mustard seed, I will move mountains or be given wings to fly. And I get emotional when I say that to myself because it's all I had. It's all I had was my faith. And I just took the leap because I didn't know what was on the other side. I didn't know if I was going to be okay. 
I didn't know how I was going to be provided for by the universe or by God, whatever you call it. Um, it's different for everybody and I respect that. But for me, it was the universe and I didn't know how it was going to be supported. I just had to trust that my faith was going to be enough because of taking that leap. It, I had to ask myself, most importantly, am I more afraid of what's on the other side or am I more afraid to stay where I'm at? And six months prior, not even six months prior to leaving, I had contemplated taking my own life. Mm-hmm. And, and I was... I was on that verge of ending my life. And I was in that space in my head where nothing could have snapped me out of it because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to feel like that anymore. And my dog actually snapped me out of that trance that I was in and I went, okay, I got to go. So even from the time that you make the decision and the decision for me was June 18th, 2018, I got to go. I still It's in the moment that you make a decision that everything begins to fall into place and you've got to keep the faith. Am I more comfortable in this pain or am I going to be more comfortable in the unknown of possibility? And it was the possibility that pulled me forward. I had to stay focused on the life that I wanted to have, not the life I was living. When it comes to um, advice for people, it's you've got to hold your faith, whatever it is. And if all you've got is the the faith of a mustard seed, it's enough. I love that. How was that being alone? Was it relieving? How did you cope and heal from all that trauma that was given to you? Wow. You know, that was, that's a really good question. And um, it was at first this wave of relief because I could finally breathe. I could breathe with, because as a survivor of abuse, when, when you're still in that situation, you're forever holding your breath because you never know what they're going to say. You're constantly walking on eggshells. There's, there's always the fear of their narcissistic wrath. And, and I found that I didn't know how to breathe deeply when I was on my own. So it really became a practice in, in deep breathing. And then when I started to breathe, all this emotion would come up. Because I'd been suppressing it all for so long. When you suppress emotion, it's going to manifest itself physically in, in your body as illness and disease. So here I am in adrenal fatigue with all these health issues because I've been suppressing myself for so long. So really, in the first few weeks, it was just about breathing. And uh, it took a while for me to, to be able to sleep. But I remember the first night that I slept a solid 10 hours and I woke up the next morning and I thought, is this life? Right. <laughs> I don't have somebody waking me up in the middle of the night for sex or yelling at me in the morning to get moving. Wow, this is incredible. So it really became a process of learning how to live my life. What, what it was I enjoyed doing. And for a very long time, I enjoyed sleep because your body's so deprived of it that when you do, and and this happens with a lot of people who are coming out of domestic abuse situations, is they're so exhausted. I'm glad that you got to that place. After all the coping and healing, what would you tell someone who is trying to get to that point? Because I feel like looking at your Instagram right now, I just feel like you know yourself so much. Like you got to a point where you know you can help others. Like what led you to becoming a coach? Yeah, when I was leaving, um, I went to my doctor And my doctor was also his family doctor. So he had a background on my situation. And I said to him, listen, I'm leaving again, but this has to be the last time. So I need the proper support in place. I need you. I need a therapist. And I had two coaches in place. And he set me up with a therapist. And he's been there monitoring my health and and everything since. 
But um, uh, what I found was that nobody was really versed in this kind of healing. Nobody really knew how to heal from this kind of trauma and to manage this kind of PTSD. So I have a hypnotherapy and a neuro-linguistic programming background from 13 years ago, and I started implementing that into my therapy. So my therapist would give me something to do, give me a task, cognitive brain therapy, and then I would take my hypnotherapy and my my NLP, and I would implement that into what she gave me. And then I thought, this isn't enough. So I decided that I was going to heal myself along with the help that I was having that I had in place. I had my support system, but it wasn't going to be enough. So I went and I took four different life coaching certifications and I now have a, I'm a master, a certified master life coach. And I was able to take all of my learning and I did it essentially just to heal myself. I had no intention of going forward and, and making this my next career. So it was, it was really an organic transition because I just started sharing all of this stuff on Instagram. I had found one account that really I connected with and I went, oh, there's other people on here who have gone through this kind of abuse. Yeah, there's actually a huge community on Instagram massive community. So when I first started, I kept myself anonymous because there's fear of being found out by the narcissist. Yes. And as I was sharing all of these anonymous posts about my progression and, and, uh, and my healing, I decided that I had to put a face to the name or to, to everything I was talking about. I had to put a face to this abuse because there were people out there, friends and family of mine who couldn't identify with things I was talking about because they didn't know that it had happened to me. And it's so unbelievable, some of the stuff that you hear from survivors of narcissistic abuse. It's so unbelievable that you don't want to believe it because it's not something that ever enters into their space of reality. So I had to put a face behind it. And I remember when I posted a picture of myself introducing myself as as Trish, you know, of this Instagram account, it changed the game. I had people reaching out to me and asking me how I was managing my healing and how this and how that. And, and I thought, well, I've got all of the credentials. I may as well start a business. And that's how I got into coaching. And it's just, it's been a a life-changing experience for me because we heal through others also. And I continue to heal through my clients, you know, and it's, it's just a beautiful, uh, a beautiful gift. I see. I believe that's all I have today for questions, but do you have any final words? You know, it's um, when you're getting ready to leave or when you're in the throes of it all and you start to think that that you want to leave, that's your first step. Just the simple fact that you want to leave is enough to get you moving and really trust your gut. When, when we get involved with someone with these narcissists, we very often give them a free pass because we're empathetics and we like to see the good in others because we see the goodness in ourselves. But um, nine times out of out of ten, the goodness we see in someone else is a reflection of our own selves. Pay attention to the red flags, but you got to take the the rose colored glasses off, or else they're just going to look like flags. So pay t- yeah, you got to trust your intuition. Trust really yourself. trust yourself. Well, I want to thank you for being a guest on the podcast. You were phenomenal. Thanks, Clara. Thank you so much. You brought amazing advice to those who are listening. And I wish you the best, Trish. And to you too. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.